Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Hey, Vergecast listeners, it's Neelai. For the past few Tuesdays, we've been running a mini-series we made about the many uses of artificial intelligence and machine learning all over the place. It's been hosted by Verge senior reporter Ashley Carmen. Today is the last episode. Hey, Ashley, how's it going? It's a sad day, last episode day. But like a happy day, because our AI future is here. It's true. We figured it out. <laughs> so we've done voice synthesis, AI and video, robots writing books with authors in text. What's this week's episode? Today, we are talking about how AI could help us create new flavors and new smells. That's this is like it's like over now we're like through the looking glass <laughs> AI taste. What's an AI taste? Well, I haven't tasted an AI taste, Neelai. This is all, you know, in the works. This is all happening as we speak. I see. So basically, like, I thought this is crazy. Like, AI can't smell. But then I realized I just have to think of, like, my nose and my little nose hairs as sensors. And then it all made sense. I was like, oh, I'm a computer. Very deep. Very existential. And my brain is running an algorithm. This is why you have to start thinking about these things when you think about smells and tastes. It's like, oh, we're just running the algorithm. I like what's happened over the past four episodes here is you've started to consider yourself more and more as an AI. It's true. I'm replaceable. It's been an interesting month. All right. <laughs> check out the rest of the episodes if you haven't listened already. They're all very good. But here is episode four of the Verchest AI series. Enjoy. When I cook a meal, I typically take stock of what's in my fridge and either Google a potential recipe or wing it. I'm definitely not doing anything fancy to figure out what could maximize my meal or flavor. But I'm a mere human, and if multiple tech companies have their way, that could change in the future with AI. In today's episode, we're talking about AI and how it relates to product design. But more specifically, how people create fragrances and flavors, smells and tastes. It sounds wild, I know, because, well, at least as far as I know, AI isn't capable of smelling or tasting. But that's what we're going to investigate today. Can AI personalize fragrances, concoct new recipe ideas, and maybe even develop a flavor we've never tasted before? It's extremely complex what we're, it's, it's insanely complex what we're trying to do. That's Frederick Dunrick. He's the founder of a company called Centronics that's part software company, part hardware. Through their algorithmic perfumery platform, he and his team are trying to make the process of developing a personalized scent as easy as answering a few questions and pressing a button. Algorithmic perfumery is on one hand, it's a machine, and it's on the other hand, it's a very big software piece. And how it works is that people go to a website and then they fill in a questionnaire and the questionnaire can be partly psychology questions or physiological questions or cultural background questions. And then based on the input they gave, the answers they gave, a unique perfume formula is created by the AI. And then people get a code and then they can go to the machine and then they fill in the code. And then the miracle of creation is happening and then the bottle travels and then the unique perfume is created for them. The questions might be as predictable as something like, what scents do you already like? Or more probing, like how do you typically dress, what you do for work, and even where you grew up. 
Frederick says this is all essential data to build a scent people like. What is important to understand on scent is that it is very cultural sensitive. So it means that the context you are in as a person and what you've smelled very often before is often a thing you're very accustomed to. Like, for instance, if you're from a different region, for instance, in what we have seen, because we have done tests in art festivals in Asia, we see that there are people, for instance, they don't like woody stuff. They really don't like woody stuff. So whenever the AI concocts something with X amount of percentage or over X amount of percentage of wood or woody ingredients, basically people, they don't like it. As Frederick mentions, he and the team are not only trying to code software and algorithms that can accurately produce a scent you'd enjoy, but also pair it with a machine that mixes that smell on demand. They're building their data set from scratch, meaning that whenever they create a smell, they ask for feedback on it, all in the hopes of improving their software. At this point, you, like me, might be wondering, why do we need AI to do this? Frederick says it's a highly complex field and one with many possible combinations that only machine learning could handle. We have three machines, actually. One machine has 38 accords. An accord consists of between five and 20 ingredients. I'm going to interrupt Frederick for a second and let you know that these accords he's referencing are scents made up of several perfume notes or ingredients. They are like mini compositions, mini building blocks where you can work with. And then a perfume typically is built out of a thousand parts. So you have a thousand small drops make a perfume. So then you can start understanding that the amount of possibilities that we have is spectacular. Like it's really gigantic what we can create and the variety we can create. Every person receives three cents from the machine. And Frederick admits they're not always a perfect match. Once every X amount of time, one of the three fragrances that you get is a random perfume. So basically that sets our benchmark because basically it tells us, okay, if we would give out random scents, how much would people like it then? And how much is contributed by the story or how much is contributed by the setting of the the machine or how people interact with it online? You know, we really validate that effect. You know, sometimes it's super bad. We almost don't beat random. But right now in the last... I would say three quarters of a year. It varies between, you know, that we go above 12% difference or sometimes even to 20% difference. So that's significant. And then basically we we continue to optimize like with the best performing algorithm. So yeah, no, we we are making progress. But successfully making these on-demand personalized sense is just part one of Centronic's loftier goal. The ultimate goal that we have is we really want to give you something that allows you to feel in a certain way that you want. So, for instance, if you would say, hey, you know, I had a bad day and I want to relax a little bit. Can you give me something that really physiologically helps you to relax? So that's an extremely complex because then you need to understand like, okay, what is your physiological response? But as well, what do you perceive? And if you say uh, relax, we need to interpret that. So there is basically a lot of parameters to be able to do that one. The other thing is we want to be able to give this to as many people as possible. And we want it to be unique. So I really want to give you something which is uniquely yours. And and bless them, there are a lot of companies that you do a questionnaire with and then in the end you get a scent, but then those scents are not really customized. They're basically, you know, standard made scents and they're not uniquely yours. And so for us, it was really the thing, now I want to give you something which is really for you, uniquely made for you. 
And this gets extra complicated, Frederick says, because of those cultural associations he mentioned earlier. Just because mint is relaxing to me doesn't mean it's relaxing to you. Instead, a key component to measuring how you like a scent is monitoring your physiological response. Of course, Frederick is thinking about that too. We're setting up a research project which is really about, okay, what physiological response do you get? So then we're going to measure, for instance, amongst others, is your arousal state, like your skin conductancy. What is your heart rate doing? What is your respiration pace doing? And then you really can go to the physiological level, like, because that's the beauty of scent. Like scent, it's processed in the oldest part of our brain. It's extremely powerful. You know, it can get you in your flight or fight mode without you being able to control it. Like if you would smell a little bit the smell of burning plastic, but subconsciously just below your awareness level, you could already get, you know, more sweaty hands. Your heart rate could go up. That physiological response is going to be key to getting us to Frederick's dream world. If you go further down the line, we're working on a very small device that basically you can wear and you can connect to your phone. And basically, if your smartwatch detects like, hey, you're stressed, it can give you a small puff because basically, you know, you kind of optimize it in such a way that you're able to control your mood a little bit. So that's the end goal. But to get there, there are so many hurdles that we need to take. And we've only taken, I would say, you know, a very small piece of it. That certainly sounds ambitious and likely a long way off. But once he and the team understand ingredients and the combinations people like, along with why they like them, they can start moving towards this hyper-personalized, AI-driven scent world. This is where I started to wonder if the AI itself could actually perceive a smell like humans do and make a judgment about it. So that's why I call it Socket Navalka. I'm a computer scientist working at the Simon Center for Quantitative Biology at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And I'm interested generally in this field called algorithms in nature, which is this idea that biological systems have evolved interesting solutions to solve what are, you know, fundamentally engineering and computational problems and that there's a lot we can learn from studying these types of systems. Socket studied fruit flies, specifically, to try and learn how they process smells and use that research to develop new algorithms. So the idea was how do fruit flies perform similarity searches? Okay, so the idea is that a fly, let's say, learns that odor A is something good and odor B is, is something bad and to be avoided. But the next time the fly experiences odor A, it's not going to experience it in the exact same way. It's going to experience, let's say, odor A prime just because of noise and, you know, other things that are happening in the environment. But somehow when it experiences this odor A prime, it needs to realize that A and A prime are similar enough to each other that it should go and maybe, you know, eat this thing that it's smelling. Okay, so how is it doing that? How is it like finding these similarity relationships between odors? And, and this is a problem that computer scientists face all the time. To be clear, Socket is not necessarily pursuing this research in order to help computers smell or to improve the state-of-the-art in AI product design. Really, he's looking for ways to make searching datasets more computationally efficient, to allow systems to quickly sort and compare information the same way that fruit flies can quickly sort and compare different odors in nature. So, for example, you know, when you go to Amazon, you'll be buying a product and they'll suggest similar products to that that you might also be interested in. 
or you know on YouTube you'll be watching a video and they'll have this sidebar of similar videos to the one you're watching. So, so this basic idea of you know you have this huge database of things that you've seen in the past, songs that you've heard, videos that you've seen, and then you get this query from the environment in real time and you have to quickly determine you know what is similar to this that I've seen before so that I can now know you know how to behave in response is really a, a, a basic computational problem that, that comes up in you know a lot of cases. This could help create a bridge between the world of organic senses and the digital world of data processing, including AI. If you understand how brains, even fruit flies' brains, react to smells, you can maybe help a computer understand that response. So now you have this smell, how is a person going to respond to that smell? Or how is it going to be perceived? What is it going to be perceived as similar to? Because it's not just chemical structure that tells you how similar two odors are. You can add a carbon atom to a molecule and it'll be completely different, a completely different smell. So understanding the relationships between these and predicting the relationships, I think is an important way to get at this question of how it's going to be perceived. And I think that these kinds of algorithms that we're developing are going to be useful for that kind of classification. These algorithms, Sackett says, could have other use cases as well. For example, they could help pick up on very faint scents in high-stakes scenarios, like in airports, where scent can be used to detect security threats. But software is only one part of the problem. And this is what Frederick was getting at, too. We need to solve for not just creating the scent, but knowing how people will process it and then determining whether they'll like it. Maybe the way to do this is by building an electronic nose. I think there's actually two aspects to actually making a successful product like this. So one is getting good sensors by themselves. So that's, you know, having, you know, in our nose, we have receptor neurons that bind to different types of chemicals, and, and they're really good at sort of sampling from the space of all possible molecules or, or odor compounds. And so if you don't have a good early representation or a good sensory measurements of what's going on, I mean, no matter what your algorithm is downstream, you're, you're pretty much screwed. So I think there's sort of two classes of problems that people are thinking about. One is how do we develop good sensors? to sort of sample from the olfactory space. And then two is, okay, now that we have good sensors and a good representation, how do we then you know, do the classification, the novelty detection, the background subtraction, and you know, all the other more complicated things downstream. So we're sort of more focused on the second problem. The first is, you know, lots of other people are working on that. As Socket points out, if computers are going to start processing data about the sensory world, they're going to need to have actual sensors that can take in information. Basically, if you're using AI to design new scents and flavors, it needs to be able to accurately detect how things smell and taste. That's where our next guest from Sony comes in. So my name is Michael Spranger. I work for Sony AI. I'm based here in Tokyo, Japan. My background is in AI research. And one of the key things I think is missing or that we don't understand well enough yet is this question of human creativity and how we can build AI systems that, that help in our endeavors for human creativity. The company is indeed working on its electronic nose, or e-nose, and also e-taste. 
It's almost like image sensing, right? So you're trying to get digital representations of food related to how the food might taste and smell. But that's, of course, still different than human perception. And so then you get into this issue of essentially trying out different things, measuring how people respond to food. And there are sort of different initiatives in this direction. So obviously, large food companies uh, have a really big inter commercial interest in understanding how people might react to their products or their potential products that they're developing. So there's lots of data in, in that direction that typically resides in large food companies. But separately from this initiative, Sony is also working on AI that might be able to assist in recipe creation, particularly for high-level chefs. You know, we had really interesting conversations about their view, the chef's view on technology and the potential for AI to solve and impact some of their processes and the problems that they might have in, in recipe creation. And more often than not, some, one, some of the answers we're getting is really in this direction of, oh, I'd really love to know more about you know, where certain ingredients are coming from, or I'd love to know more about the seasonality of ingredients, or I'd love to know more about the health aspects and sustainability aspects. And I think that's really, that goes to the core of why I think AI is important in this field is really recipe creation or any kind of creative endeavor. I think it's really a, a process of constrained optimization. As with the use of AI in fragrances, the idea is that these people are working with extremely complex data sets, whether for smell or taste, that machine learning sorts through to find hidden relationships. In this case, that might mean finding the connection between the composition of a dish and the response of the person who eats it. Do they like this dish? Very, very quickly, the problem becomes very, very complex with different sources of information, continuous you know, measurements of you know, how food impacts human perception, all the way to you know, the seasonality, these large kind of signals um, and, and changes that impact food and the performance of food or the but also the sustainability aspects, like when is it good to harvest certain food? How, I mean, all the way down to how we create food for consumption, more broadly speaking. Like how do we like control the agriculture of the food in order to produce it and get the best possible performance essentially out of food so as an optimization problem? Recipe creation in cooking is a situation Michael sees as ripe for AI. A lot of the information that you find in recipes is really implicit and recipe descriptions are very coarse but somehow to us they make this enormous amount of sense and it's like almost like we can almost visualize the steps that are necessary to take in order to fulfill certain recipes but if you look at the actual information that's transported in recipes um, like literally what it says like what are the you know the lines and what are the things that are not being said and you as a person while you're cooking you're filling in uh, some of this detail and so i think that's like a really interesting challenge for computers or more broadly speaking also for ai of course none of this sony technology is in public use yet so we haven't tried an ai created dish unfortunately but Michael says that they might have more to say about this soon. Ultimately, though, this entire conversation leads us back to a question we asked in prior episodes of the show. What role does AI play? For food, will it design recipes entirely or inspire them? Is AI writing the menu or is it just the sous chef? I think AI is going to play a role in prediction. And I think that's maybe more important in the gastronomy space than it is in the image space, because of course in an image space, you can just look at an image. 
But in the gastronomy space, right, if you have a recipe, what you really have is sort of a textual representation of a potential taste. But that doesn't mean that you, <laughs> by looking at the recipe, you can feel it on your tongue or you can envision the smell that this thing is going to make. And so you're going to have to actually go through the process of making the dish and then trying it out. And my vision for the future would be, my hope, my aspiration would be that AI can help in some of these processes by predicting what a specific recipe might look like or whether it fits a specific creative vision. That's a lot to take in, and to be honest, I'm hungry now. So we're going to take a break, and when we get back, James Vincent, The Verge's AI and machine learning senior reporter, will be here. We're going to chat all things flavor, taste, smell, and AI, plus a little more on product design. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn, it's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. All right, we are back, and with us is James Vincent, The Verge's senior reporter who specializes in AI and machine learning. Hello, James. Hello, Ashley. It is uh, lovely to be back again and chatting machine learning with you. How are you doing today? I am great. Good. So you've heard throughout this episode, we're talking about product design as it relates to flavors and smells. And as I always say, I need to get your take. What what are your thoughts here? <laughs> what, are, what are your impressions? This is a really interesting topic for me. And I feel like there's something about it, which is, it's kind of difficult to talk about, right? I've written about some of these sorts of creative endeavors in the past. And the thing is that they are inherently less... I don't know, measurable, shall we say, right? If, if we're talking about what text can an AI output that a human can't, you can just type that in there, you see what it comes up with and you can judge that. But when you're integrating AI into these sorts of product design processes, I'm a little bit more skeptical because I think it's actually very hard to tell what contribution the machine is making and whether that contribution is necessary. Now, I, I don't want to come across as too skeptical and it's been really interesting to listen to uh, you know these people talk about how they're using it but I do worry that sometimes AI is used as a bit of a marketing flourish in these areas and it's saying oh we had to use machine learning because it's just so incredibly complex whereas I feel like well incredible complexity is what humans are used to dealing with when it comes to sensations and tastes and smells and sights and th this more aesthetic realm. Mm -hmm. I wondered, you know, how, how did you feel about talking to these people? Were you convinced that AI was a necessary part of the equation? 
you know, it was tricky because in some ways I felt like, okay, I've never made a perfume, for example. There is probably so much that goes into it that I'm just deeply not aware of. So in that way, I was like, I'm going to have to take your word for it. This does seem complex. But at the same time, like you were kind of mentioning, it was hard for me to fully grasp why we needed AI to do these things. Like, for example, talking about having a puff of a certain smell delivered to us based on the readings happening in our wearable. Like, that sounds cool. It sounds cool, no doubt about it. But I also think of, like, my mom, who has a diffuser that I bought her and is like, today I'm in the mood for lavender. (laughs) So in that way, it it is kind of like, I don't know if this is, for me, a problem that needs to be solved necessarily. But you're right that it is just harder to, like, qualify because with our previous episodes, you can see the work being removed from video editing and things yes. like that. You could you can hear our voice clones. You can read the text and also hear it in this form. Hear the text. And you're like, okay, that's really interesting. I cannot believe a computer did this. Yeah. Whereas here you're like, I don't know. Did a computer do this? Yeah. You know, and I, I don't want to, as I say, I don't want to express too much skepticism about this because I, I do think that there is potential for AI to be used in these complex data sets. Like what AI is good at is finding hidden relationships it's finding connections as you said within these vast data sets and i feel that there definitely is a place where that can be used and i think ai can be really useful at sort of personalizing stuff to you and trying to create something that is unique so i think what ai does it creates abundance right and then it is up to uh, humans to try and choose what is the best of its output and i think that's sort of like what we talked about in the text episode, right, is that you get these text generation machines and part of the good thing is that they can come out with a ton of content, but you do do still need a human element to winnow that down. One thing that I've sort of tested that is similar to this is uh, an app called Endel, E-N-D-E-L, which creates these sorts of infinite loops of music and they're supposed to be used for working or for working out or for going to sleep or for helping you focus that they're, they're, they're sort of generated on the fly it's not pre-recorded stuff and they're supposed to personalize it to your location the time of day and maybe if you want to add in some information about how you're feeling they'll sort of tailor it to that now The degree of tailoring, I think, is probably really simple. I think it's probably just a lot of if this, then that functions, which is not really machine learning. It's just basic programming. But the abundance that the thing can come up with is a factor of machine learning, I think. And I think there is something really appealing about this idea of having something that is unique and personal to you. It may not be tailored exactly to your needs. It may not be like this perfect match of your desires, but it is still unique. I think that's kind of cool. Do you think, and this obviously came up a lot in the episode, we talked a lot about just the fact that there's this whole part of trying to personalize things that maybe we can't even access, which is this data around how we physically respond to things, Yeah. specifically in the sense world, but maybe also in other areas as well. I just wonder if you think that this sort of personalized future is a far ways off until we have Apple Watches that can like do more intrusive, I guess, monitoring of our like blood levels or anything else. I have no clue. But like, yeah, if you just think that that part of the technology needs to catch up before we enter sort of the true world where AI can really help personalize everything. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question because I I think that's like it's sort of a core question of the digital age, which is what can we capture in digital systems and can we capture every facet of human experience and 
emotion. Because I think if we're talking about smells and tastes and those sorts of aesthetic experiences, they are just, they're really hard to pin down. They're hard to describe if you're the one experiencing them. And I am a little bit sceptical about this stuff. I, I think there is knowledge in the world that is hard to digitize, to capture, to record, however you want to term it. And I think there's always going to, not always, but I think there is for the foreseeable future going to be a limit in how well computers can interpret this stuff. And this is why I mentioned confidence earlier, because I think it's a lot of it is about confidence. If you think that the machine is clever enough to read your mind, then you sort of let it. Do you ever feel like this yourself? Like when you, you're getting something delivered that's tailored to you, I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's like a workout or something like this, or, or, mm. or, or clothes that are being recommended to you. Do you ever feel that actually, wow, the algorithm saw through to my what I needed in this moment? Or do you feel that it's just getting lucky? Well, I think the only place I can think of where I really see this is less in physical goods, but more algorithms tailored to me, like my Instagram feed. Oh, of course, yeah. And in some ways, that is... I guess a physical good because I'm thinking of the shopping feature where I'm just like, yeah. why are these stores not in real life? Everything is so good. <laughs> and so I guess I'm predictable. I mean, to some extent, that's more of like aesthetic versus sort of the senses and things like that. But Both similar. It's the same realm, right? It's taste. Yeah. I can imagine also, though, if I shopped at a specific candle company and I was buying a specific thing all the time, they might be able to be like, you know, we see you really like this try this. We think you might like this one too. Yeah. So I feel like I can't, it can be in that way. I can be seen. Yeah. I, I feel that's a really interesting comparison, the shopping in the products, because like that is something that like is very personal, but it, it also follows these macro trends that can be mapped in easier way. And for me, that is more legible as data than mm -hmm. what I enjoyed at a meal in the restaurant. I feel that comes down to or what smell I like. Like the smells you like are so damn personal. Mm -hmm. Like what smell do you associate with, you know, people you love, uh, you know, with your parents, with loved ones in your life? Like, is it because you like the smell or is it because you like the person? Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I do, do feel that there's this, there's this realm that I'm sceptical about AI being able to map fully. Because, the, yeah, it's based on those in, interpersonal experiences. We're just complicated beings. <laughs> we are complicated beings. We have a lot of baggage we carry around with us. The AI will never know our baggage. Yeah, machines aren't always going to be able to help us deal with this stuff. I like this as a place to sort of end on because I feel like that was the point of this series was looking at how AI intersects with these various industries and where we see them in use now. Yeah. And um, we've seen where they're in use now, but it sounds like to me the broader conclusion we've come to is that one, maybe we're replaceable at some point, but this <laughs> human touch is kind of really needed right now. And these AI use cases are putting AI more in a position to be an inspirer, an a assistant, things like that, where it's not fully driving the car, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I know. I think that's completely right. I, I, I feel that like we often get quite scared about the what we see as the intrusion of these non-human systems into what we think of as human domains, whether that is writing, whether that is cooking. And we get scared even when it's only a little bit of our territory that's being impinged on. Um, and it's just it's just novelty, you know. And I, I don't think that machines are going to end up destroying the ability of, <laughs> of humans to be independent, creative uh, entities in the world. I, I don't think that's how it, I don't think that's how these things work. I think it, it just seems like a bigger 
danger than it is because it's so new and it's unusual to us. I mean, you've been you've been doing all these interviews. Do you feel threatened <laughs> by the rise of the machines in the creative industries? You don't sound like you do. You sound like you feel maybe reassured. Yeah, I was going to say, wow, I'm so happy we are getting to this point where I'm like, wait, I'm not anxious for once. Uh, but what I will also say is going into this somewhat blind and really learning about AI through this podcast series, I'm coming out of it being like, wow, like AI actually does a lot more than I thought. Simultaneously mm. does a lot more than I thought, but also a lot less, <laughs> which I feel like is a really good place to be. Like, okay, it can do some really cool stuff. Yeah, I, I always get to that point in my reporting where like half of me is thinking, these machines, they're really up to some interesting stuff here. And the other part <laughs> of me is thinking, these machines are so dumb. Yeah, you, you just you flip between those two extremes because it's new territory and you're trying to work out what the context is. And it's always very difficult. So, yeah, no, I, I, I'm completely with you on that. And it'll be interesting if in three or four years, maybe even less, but I'm thinking three or four years, we did the same series and checked in where things were then. I imagine it's going to be wildly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of our conversations about where the future is going to go for this, there has been always loads to talk about and loads of like loads of possibilities. So yeah, at three or four years from now, we'll be seeing even more. I have no doubt about it. I'll ping you on Slack for our reunion special. Let's put it in the GCAL now. Let's let's get a date <laughs> yeah, let's and we'll, get you know, we'll, we'll, we'll schedule it out now. Exactly. <laughs> Surely there's an AI assistant that can help us do that. Anyway. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, James. This was amazing. I'm beyond happy we got to collaborate on this show. You're the best. I hope everyone enjoyed hearing from James. And if you're listening, follow his work on TheVerge.com. Find his Twitter. What's your Twitter, James? My Twitter is JJ Vincent. And thank you so much uh, for having me, Ashley. It's been, yeah, it's been amazing fun to work with you, to talk with you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to this Vergecast AI mini-series. This podcast is made by producer Liam James, senior audio director Andrew Marino, senior reporter James Vincent, and me, senior reporter Ashley Carmen. Talk soon. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.